You just heard the reading of the scripture through a, a Lumo video of, of Luke chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at, uh, at that famous scene of Jesus being tested, being tempted by uh, the accuser in the, in the desert. Uh, we've, we're on this journey with Luke, and Luke has already let us see behind the scenes, as it were, of a number of, of, of situations. He's taken us uh, in, in a kind of special way to Jesus' baptism. But we, don't, we, we of course, see Jesus plunged in water, but we see more. We, we get to hear the voice from, from heaven uh, that says in Luke 3, 22, that uh, we watch the Holy Spirit, as, as Luke says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily appearance as a dove, and a voice came from God's realm, you are my son whom I love, in you I take delight. And so we've been able to, to share with Luke, through Luke, in that, that affirmation of God concerning Jesus. And of course, we already know that that joins up with uh, what we heard right at the start of the Gospel of Luke from Gabriel talking to Mary as he announced the birth of Jesus to her, where he said that he'll be called the Son of the Most High. This is in chapter 1, verses 32 to 35. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He'll reign as king over the house of Jacob for the ages. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then a little later he says, he will be called holy, the son of God. And then, of course, as we talked about uh, when we were last in this, that, that, that we saw the, the kind of the review of humanity that comes in that long genealogy, 76 names. It takes us all the way back to son of Adam, son of God at the, at the end of the, the genealogy. And so he lets us review that whole humanity that's behind Jesus as he comes to this, this point that we're looking at this morning. We're about to go to Nazareth with him. Nazareth, there's going to be some conflict, as perhaps you remember when we talked about it in the very first sermon in this series, and as he goes to Nazareth in chapter 4, verse 16. That's where things become start becoming complicated and they continue complicated for the rest of the entire gospel but first before with all of that behind us we get this glimpse of this unseen reality that's one of the things i liked about the way that the lumo video makers uh did it they did not try to to uh show us particularly the accuser but they showed us just Jesus interacting there. Jesus is in the wilderness. We see, we know the Spirit is leading him. And we have this, this person that in, in the translation that they were using is called the devil. And that's the, the Greek word diabolos. It kind of gets shaped over the centuries and becomes the English word devil. But a translation of it is accuser or slanderer as over against just simply tr letting the word evolve into a, a different uh, a word in, in, in English with all of the implications and all of the, the resonances that go with that word devil. It means an accuser. It means a slanderer. And we learn that term from the, the Hebrew word Satan that we meet with the book of Job and, and so forth, where the, um, 
the, the, the Satan, the accuser, is this kind of cynical uh, one who, who looks at, cynically at any human goodness or any human claims to righteousness. And as that language has developed and as it has become devil in English and in other languages too, uh, it sparked all kinds of imaginations across the, across the centuries in our, our literature. All the events of Jesus' life bear a vast weight of expectation, hopes for people, ideas of God, what God is doing, exploring what God is doing, one take on what God is doing confronting another. And Luke takes us, as a writer can, into experiences that are beyond our reach, Jesus and the accuser. That's, as we looked at that video, you would, there's, we, we have no access to that meeting except as Jesus himself would give it to his disciples. But at the same time, the words are very recognizable to us. We, and I, I'm pretty sure that all of us are here, here uh, this is true about, we know about temptation. We've all experienced testing in one form or another. We know from our experience and from our, just the things that we've gone through, whether it's the enticing kind of temptation towards something that's, that looks wonderful and beautiful or whatever it is, or the maybe more negative side of testing that confronts us with something that, we're strugg that we struggle with. Even from Scripture, too, we get that, that complexity, that depth. In James, in a famous passage in the, the letter, letter of James, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, warns, no one, when they're tested, and this, he uses the very same word that's used here through, for tempted or tested in our, in our text, should say, I'm being put to the test from God. For God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself tests no one with evil, I think, understood. But each person is tested by their own desire as it lures and entices them. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. As Luke describes Jesus here, he, um, just in the words that he chooses to use, it just in a few words, draws out echoes of perhaps the most famous description of testing in the whole Bible, namely Israel, as Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus. They had gone through so much in, in slavery and all of that. God delivers them. There's the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the waters, all of that. And yet, when they come out into the, the wilderness, into the desert, they face hunger, they face thirst, they face all kinds of... They have no resources as, as slaves who've just escaped with the, by the skin of their teeth, as it were. Yes, God delivered them from Egypt. They got across the Red Sea. But for, for many of them, they felt abandoned there in the 
in the wilderness. At least that's certainly what they said. Moses had brought them out to die in the desert. And their fierce challenge even marked the, the name of the place where all this took place. And you can read about it directly in like in Exodus chapter 16 and following. But uh, then in, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it's interpreted by, by, um, by Moses. And the name Masa was given to the place because it was, that means testing. And they were asking the question, is God with us? Or not? Is God among us or not? Exodus 17, verse 7. Luke shows Jesus, as it were, as Israel in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of Holy Spirit, left the Jordan behind, and he was being led in the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. When he was put to the test by the accuser, the diabolos. Now, he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were completed, he was hungry. Jesus, full of spirit, led by the spirit, led by God. In other words, just as the Israelites are described as being led by God with the pillar of, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. 40 days of testing, reminding us of the 40 days of Moses fasting at Mount Sinai, or later Elijah's fasting for 40 days, or the 40 years of wandering of the people. And he is hungry. Now, in the wilderness, Israel grumbles, testing Moses, testing God, testing themselves. But that grumbling, as it were, now comes in the voice of the accuser, the diabolos. But as we come to it then, what actually unfolds is, at least to me anyway, surprising. Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So the accuser said to him, that is to Jesus, if you're a son of God, when, when God spoke to Jesus at the baptism, you are the son, the one whom I love, the son. The, the accuser doesn't use that the there. He just says, if you're a son of God, even though it often gets translated with, a, with an, uh, an article there. If you're a son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, it's written, not on bread alone will the human live. Uh, that's an awkward translation, not nearly as good as man shall not live by bread alone. But it's more literal anyway. Not on bread alone will the human, the anthropos, the human being, stay alive, continue alive. We know temptation, as I said. We know testing. We humans are experts on it in a way. We experience it often as an intense interior struggle, like, like James talked about with our desires and so forth. Or like Paul talked about in Romans 7, verse 24, when he comes to talking about it and he ends up saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But here the picture from Jesus, evidently, 
is stylized and formal. It's, it's almost more like a parable than an intense psychological struggle, much less an intense psychological battle. It's a formal conversation. Yes, a, a testing, I guess, a sort of temptation. We have maybe a sense from its universalized character that there's more at stake, that we humans are involved, that our life is at stake. But Luke, as he tells us the story, like Matthew also, gives us no inner thoughts from Jesus. Not Jesus' struggle with these things inside himself, but a strike, but rather gives us striking patterns as this, these sections unfold that help us to explore the meaning of Jesus and his ministry. We, if we can see it, can see a little bit of what Jesus sees and compare that with what we think we know about him as we, we learn more and more. The accuser says, turn a stone into a loaf of bread. Tell me, what's wrong with that? What's the temptation? It's certainly not a sin for Jesus to make bread. Later on, he feeds 5,000, as we all well know. So why doesn't Jesus just do it? Why doesn't he make a nice sandwich and go on his way, glad that the 40 days of fasting are over? I think, surely, sets off the mind trying to think, surely Luke wants us to see the link between the first part of what the accuser says and that second part. The accuser says, if you're a son of God, Tell this stone to become bread, a loaf of bread. What does son of God mean? Is it really true? We heard Jesus, we heard Gabriel. Do we believe it? Does, does Jesus know that it's true? Is it true? Surely, at least in the assumption of, that's there in the, in the accuser's words, surely that means uh, if it's true, it carries a level with some, some rights with it. It's, it's not like hungry Israel, a mass of people out in the wilderness. Surely it blocks out suffering. If you're a son of God, what's really happening here? Jesus, with the Spirit, has just taken on 40 days, that's a long time of fasting. And Luke emphasizes that by saying he ate nothing. In fact, he doubles up the negatives. He didn't eat nothing at all. He ate not a thing during those 40 days. <clears throat> the real question is not can he make bread or even can he get bread. They just walk over to the, some little village somewhere and get it. The real question is the hunger, I think. Can the beloved Son of God that we've just heard about, the one that God affirms, 
the one who's empowered by God's spirit, can he really be starving, hungry? Does that hunger make him weak or does it open new strength as a, as a suffering human being? What is it that's really going on here? What is happening? And Luke wants us to see that the accuser does not know. As far as he's concerned, just fix the problem. Turn the stone into bread. But Jesus goes directly to Israel's story. He's in that wilderness and he knows that he is with God's people, that whole line behind him. And he goes to Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, as Moses recounts those experiences coming out of Egypt. Reading Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Remember the way the Lord your God led you for 40 years in the wilderness, testing you to know what was in your heart. He humbled you, or it could be translated, he afflicted you by hunger, then fed you the manna, which you did not know, in order to help you understand that not on bread alone will the human live, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All food is God's gift. That's not the issue. A little bit later on, Jesus is going to teach his disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer. And part of it is, give us today our daily bread. Every day. Our bread is not something we win. It's not something that we earn. It is something given by God, if we see it correctly. That's... No challenge. That, that's the way things are from this point of view. Even if it comes from a stone. But as with Israel, this is not just about bread. This is about all that comes from God's heart. All that God's doing in Jesus. Can God's beloved son be a hungry human can he bear human brokenness? Forty days and hunger aren't weakness, like the accuser seems to think, but strength to become God's broken bread. Bread, as you know, as you follow on through the gospel, becomes a great sign, a symbol of what's happening in Jesus. It's one of the ways that God shows his love for those with eyes to see. We think of, just to go to the most notable passages, and there are others that we could go to. Luke 22, verse 19, at the Last Supper, Jesus took a loaf, the same term that's used here, and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. This is my body. He said. Or then that's picked up and reiterated and reemphasized in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke with those, that story that we've referred to so many times, the Emmaus disciples. Jesus walking with them, talking to them, telling them so many things, but they don't recognize him. They can't see him 
until he comes into their home and they have bread there and he took the loaf and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They run back to Jerusalem, see the other disciples and tell them about how he was known to us in the breaking of the bread. In Acts, the breaking of bread becomes a crucial sign among the new community. <sighs> the accuser thought he knew what he was talking about, but he's silent. He seems not to know what to say, and so he takes a, a different tactic. Now, the accuser evidently knows that this whole thing with Jesus and the Messiah and all of that is about a kingdom. Jesus is going to announce the good news of the kingdom of God, Luke 4:43. The accuser knows kingdoms, as he says. Luke 4, 5 through 8 in our text. Then when he led him up high up, the accuser showed, notice how indefinite that is. He just led him high up wherever. The accuser... <clears throat> showed all the kingdoms of the inhabited world to him in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I'll give the authority of all these, along with their glory, because it's been handed over to me, and I give it to anyone I want. You then, if you worship before me, It'll be yours. In response, Jesus said to him, It's written, You will worship the Lord your God, and to him alone you will give service. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. An instant view of the world's real kingdoms and real authority and glory, the real power, not some spiritual kingdom of God, Luke's already anticipated this as we've followed through the this, this story. We've seen Augustus Caesar, mentioned back there in chapter 2, verse 1. He gives an order for all the inhabited world to be enrolled. And it's that same word that is picked up here, the whole, all the kingdoms of the inhabited world. It's the, the, the phrase inhabited world is a translation of the, the Greek oikumene, from which we get words like ecumenical and so forth. It takes in everybody, all of human structures of power that produce control and wealth and fame and glory. And like Augustus, who presents himself as a great benefactor, who creates peace through conquest, whose birthday becomes the New Year's Day in the vast Roman Empire, there is this claim to the power of kingdoms, that one can recognize that, that strength, and the accuser makes his claim on it. He says, actually, I'm the one behind it. Augustus and the rest, they may not recognize it, but they've handed it over to me. I don't think it's meaning that God handed it over, and we'll mention that why that is a little bit later. They've handed it over to me. They're all only for a moment with their conquests and glory. I'm really in charge. 
For example, the great Augustus that was mentioned back in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 is already dead by the time we get to Luke chapter 4 verse 1. His corrupt son Tiberius is now in charge. I give it to anyone I want, says the accuser. You then, if you worship before me, it'll all be yours. There it is. The classic temptation. In later times, in literature, we call it a Faustian bargain. Sell your soul. Worship me. And I'll give you your heart's desire. You want to proclaim a kingdom? I'll give you all kingdoms. On all levels. From world wars to family spats. From office feuds to the race for celebrity and political power. That temptation, that test is faced and failed every day all around us. We, in a very real sense, live in the city of the Faustian bargain. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. The power of politics, money, fame, violence, pleasure, all of these things and many more, these are the gods that we glorify and that are as real. But not really. The accuser is deceived. Every kingdom that he could show on that moment of time has now evaporated. God is the world's creator. As Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth belongs to the Lord and its fullness, the inhabited world. In the Greek translation, that's this word oikumene, the inhabited world and all those who dwell in it. One can cite numerous passages like that. The son of man, a term that we learn about a lot more as we go through the gospel, gains all peoples, all nations, as Daniel sees the vision of him in Daniel 7:14. The Messiah, the son of David, on whose throne Jesus, Gabriel says, will sit, receives the ends of the earth, Psalm 2, verse 8. Really? Is that true? As Jesus responds to him, Jesus goes to the, the what we might call for him the, the center of the scriptures. To Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, to that famous, famous passage that, that, at least in what I'm going to read, starts with what Jesus later calls the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 4 through 6, and then 10, and then 12 through 14, and 16, and 18, just because I can't read the whole thing. Don't want to take the time to read it, but you can go to your Bibles and read the whole thing. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, then do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. 
you shall fear, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him you shall serve. That's the line that Jesus quotes at this particular point. You shall not go after other gods. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's going to use that in a moment. As you tested him at Massa, that place that was named for the testing. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. All other claims to power are passing and usually become destructive. Only by putting love for a God of love at the center can life be transformed, can hope be transformed. But we, like the accuser, face an immense challenge of imagination. Every structure around us in our world, even in a so supposedly so-called Christian nation, is shaped to tell us that what the accuser is offering is the real thing. Mammon is the true effective, powerful God behind all power, pleasure, celebrity. Jesus says, no. What scripture says is true. All true power, everything that really lasts, flows from the love of God. The whole material world, in fact, is from God's love as creator. If you have eyes to see it. Jesus is the very substance, the embodiment of that love. So finally, the accuser wields his third weapon, the, the weapon of our innate skepticism, our, our doubt. It's, it's his stock and trade. God won't let himself be displayed. He won't let himself be proved. We want to cross-examine him. We want to judge God. We want signs. Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Then he brought him into Jerusalem and stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are a son of God, big if, throw yourself down from here. Because it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they'll lift you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You believe scripture, don't you? And in answer, Jesus told him, you shall not set a test for the Lord your God. And when he had completed every test, notice the irony just of those words juxtaposed, the accuser withdrew from him until an opportune time. From the temple top, the pinnacle, supposedly it was about 450 feet down. I mean, for us, that's child's play. That's only 45 stories, my goodness. But it, for them, it was a long ways down. He has, he wants them to look down from that and to make God come out of hiding. To prove himself. 
Actually, also to prove your own faith. Do you really believe this stuff? God's promises? Then throw yourself down. Let's see if you're right. Today, that's a most popular challenge. This famous story of Bertrand Russell, the great modern philosopher, supposedly said that if he encountered God after death and was asked why he didn't believe in God, he would answer, you didn't give enough evidence. C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote an essay called God in the Dock about modern people rather, rather seeing themselves as standing, rather than seeing themselves as standing before God in judgment, prefer to place God on trial while they act as his judge. But it's not just modern people. It's human. It's the accuser. It's the Satan of Job. Scripture describes many signs. And we sometimes think, if only I'd lived back then, faith would have been a snap. It would have been so easy. But in fact, as you follow the stories of them through the Scriptures, none of the signs, even the most dramatic miracles, compel belief. Some varied explanation can always be given for any phenomenon. Even the resurrection, Thomas, one of his own disciples, says, I won't believe until I put my finger right there. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 45, 15, truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, our Savior. God's presence is there hidden in plain sight for eyes to see, eyes like people that we've met in Luke, Simeon, Anna, Mary. The question is, what do you see? Are your eyes really open? Simeon or Anna taking a little baby in their arms from a woman who's so poor that she can only offer two doves rather than a lamb. And they know that they have seen the hope that they've been longing for all their lives fulfilled. The problem is God really proving himself and what that does to us. God in love wants a relationship of faith and love with us humans. That means that human freedom is fundamental. Unforced relationships, a relationship freely given. Now you, I, anybody can reject God. We can rebel. We can do huge damage if we want to. Or we can respond in love and practice grace, generosity, and forgiveness. We have real choices. God's power does not stop us. It doesn't make wrong choices impossible. So much of the damage that we do, we do intending something that we consider good. So later, we often blame God for what we do. Why did he let me do that? Why did he allow us humans to have this problematic freedom? Now, without that freedom, we might imagine that things on this planet would be pleasanter. 
but we wouldn't really be humans in that case. We wouldn't have real choices. We couldn't perform actions that are our own and that make a difference. It goes back to that fundamental question, what's really going on here? What is God doing? Can we make him prove it? There is no test that we can impose. If it were just a matter of power, perhaps we could imagine it. But God is more than power. God is love. That love is clear to open ears and hearts if you know what to listen for, where to look. In a worn out, hungry man walking, I think maybe purposely, through the wilderness, finding the path that brings together God's love and human freedom and brokenness. It's there when we see Jesus self-giving love in his crucifixion and in creating new life for us. It makes possible a free relationship of self-giving love between a little being of dust like me or you and the infinite God of everything that exists. That gift of freedom is the true gift of the infinite power of God's love. So we come to Luke 4, verses 13 through 15. And when he had completed every test, the accuser withdrew from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and news went out through all the surrounding regions, region telling of him. And he himself began teaching in the synagogues of the people and, and was highly praised by all. The accuser, far from being so wise, is dumbfounded. He leaves. He's got to find a better opportunity, a different opening for his pedestrian tests that work so well on the rest of us. Jesus takes the good news of God and God's kingdom to the people. He heads for ordinary people that he knows, people in Galilee, in their assemblies, in their synagogues. Now praise is everywhere. But Jesus knows a different time is coming. He's headed toward a skeptics in his hometown in Nazareth. We're left thinking, what did I just see? Is that the shape of God's power? Is that the shape of God's love? Can his hunger touch even me in all my human hunger for meaning, for life? And the answer is yes, yes, amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to see Jesus to see what he means, what he does for us in our lives. 
what it means to become disciples to this one who is both us and you. We beg of you that you allow us to see into him. In his name we pray. Amen.